0: Thank you for listening to our Oppenheimer Let's Talk Future podcast series. In this episode, our guest is Noah Kay, the Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer, and our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on August 17th, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous episodes. Subscribing also means you won't miss out on new episodes with our thought leaders, who bring you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. Welcome to our episode called The Circular Economy and the Eight Stocks to Watch. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're talking with Noah Kay of Oppenheimer. Now, on this podcast, we like to tackle thematic subjects that have major investment implications. This is certainly one of those how to create an economic system where reusability is the driver and minimizing waste is the goal. And where do we find investment opportunities in the solutions? We'll discuss the implications for companies and industries like plastics, mining, construction, and the power sector. And and as always, by talking future and discussing the eight stocks that are central to this investment thesis. Our guest is Noah Kay. managing director and senior analyst in Oppenheimer's sustainable growth and resource optimization research practice. He has deep experience in both analysis and operational roles in sustainable finance, alternative transport, industrial efficiency, and waste and solar services. He holds a BA from Yale, an MA from Johns Hopkins, and an MBA from Wharton. So with all of that, welcome, Noah.
1: Well, thanks so much, Jane.
0: We're very excited to have you here. Now, let's start with the basics and what we mean when we talk about the circular economy. Sure. And
1: circular economy is something I've been thinking a lot about over the last 18 months. I've been spending, as I think many listeners probably have, been a lot more time at home, a lot more time with my children who are six years old and under and watching them come to understand that you can just ask mom and dad to go on amazon and order something at the push of a button it'll be there two days later uh, and then you put the box out and we'll see how long the object that they're purchasing lasts but this sort of peak of industrial capitalism that we're living in today is really quite something and i think has given us time to reflect on what our economy looks like and what it can look like uh, moving forward. And so the circular economy is a fascinating idea. It's a a systemic approach to economic development designed to benefit businesses, society, and the environment. It's really a contrast to the take-make-waste linear model. A circular economy is regenerative by design and aims to gradually decouple growth from the consumption of finite resources. It builds and rebuilds overall system health. And look, the idea that natural resources are finite and need to be reused has deep-rooted origins in many cultures over human history. There are so many influencers to acknowledge, even in our modern times. But one of the books I read in my 20s was Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things by the American architect Bill McDonough. And he emphasized how much of sustainability comes down to design, that design is the first signal of human intention. The design of a product is the key determinant of its life cycle. And so he, along with Michael Browngard, came up with a concept for products, a certification system that measures a product's material health, renewable energy inputs, reuse potential, social fairness. Another really influential book written in 1999 that I just finished reading was Natural Capitalism by Amory Lovins, Hunter Lovins, and Paul Hawken. And Amory Hunter Lovins, they founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, and that has been a tremendous influence on industry and policymakers around the areas of energy and resource efficiency. And natural capitalism basically says, look, the global economy is dependent on natural resources and ecosystem services that nature provides. So we need to have an economic system that doesn't deplete those stocks of natural capital. And if we just harness our innate creativity and ingenuity, we can have that economy. And then within the last decade, the key institution I think that is important to highlight here is the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who worked with McKinsey to put out a report in 2013 that really defined the circular economy and the opportunity. They also partnered with the World Economic Forum, UNEP, WRI, and others to launch the platform for accelerating the circular economy in 2018. And obviously, these principles tend to align with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and increasingly are being embraced by consumers, corporates, investors, and governments around the world.
0: It's interesting because that take-make-waste model that you talked about goes back to the industrial revolution. So it would seem that we're due for a, a change in thinking. And aside from protecting the planet, which is a big goal, there are definite economic advantages or benefits that come from this shift, right?
1: Absolutely, Jane. Look at energy and cost savings associated with increased resource efficiency. If you can design products with secondary raw materials instead of virgin in areas like metal, glass, or paper production, that can yield between 20 to 90% energy savings, significant water savings, and that increased resource productivity increases growth, it increases jobs. And- To top it off, you get enhanced security of supply of materials, which is helpful for companies, both in mitigating price volatility and availability, which we've seen, supply chains really stretched over the past year as the industrial economies tried to re-ramp, it's also frankly helpful geopolitically.
0: Right. And, And speaking of geopolitically, that's a good place to segue. It seems like we have major barriers in the regulatory environment, and we're not just talking about the U.S. here, we're talking about global regulation. So How do you look at that construct and do you have a sense of optimism on the regulatory front? I
1: do actually, from a regulatory perspective, Europe in particular has really embraced the circular economy. So in 2018, the European Commission enacted a circular economy package designed to increase resource efficiency by 30% by 2030, relative to 2014 levels. This was very comprehensive, and they had some specific goals, including a minimum of 65% of all municipal waste to be recycled by 2035, including 70% of packaging, and at least 32% of energy consumption from renewables by 2030, They followed that up in 2020 with a circular economy action plan focusing on batteries, construction, buildings, plastics, textiles, electronics. Now, one major aspect of the program that is a bit controversial is a mandate for extended producer responsibility. Essentially, under EPR, the producer of goods pays into a dedicated fund solely to invest in the recycling and reuse of those goods. And there is a charge modulation for producers that are producing packaging that's harder to recycle than the county or a state or a local jurisdiction uses stewardship organization to operate the EPR program and report results. In the U.S., we have one example of this is a bottle of bill. We have that in a number of states. I think in Europe, there's a tendency by corporates to favor EPR because it's effectively a producer control policy. In the U.S., the EPR tends to be somewhat seen as inhibiting free enterprise, potentially a means of government control. We have started to see a growing number of U.S. states introduce EPR bills, Maine, Oregon, New York. Another policy trend we're seeing that seems to have more support domestically is around minimum post-consumer content. So in September 2020, California's governor signed the first law in the nation establishing recycled content standards in single-use beverage containers, 15% post-consumer content by 2022, right? That's next year. And 50% by 2030. Similar laws requiring recycled content in Washington state, other states looking at doing it. I think that raises a whole question of technical feasibility. How are the beverage companies going to source that post-consumer content? We are seeing investment to capture post-consumer PET content. We might start to see Decoupling of virgin versus uh, recycled commodity prices. At the federal level, we did see in Congress the break free from plastic pollution bill. And there are some initiatives that we are going to continue to track over time.
0: It seems like there's a definite push from the consumer looking for transparency in packaging. But so you mentioned plastics, which seems like that's always the, the biggest offender. Plastics in our ocean, a fifth of the waste in our landfills is plastic. How do we think that industry is going to be able to adapt and be part of the change?
1: There is a very real issue here, right? Since the 1970s, the plastics production has grown so much faster than all of the materials, and frankly, versus overall GDP growth. Global plastic waste generation in 2018 was 343 million metric tons. Nearly half of that comes from packaging. You have 50% of all plastic waste coming from just two polymers, polyethylene and polypropylene, which have very low recycling rates. In the U.S., we, we recycle just 9% of plastics. 16% goes to incineration and the rest of the landfills. It, yeah, it's not just the U.S. Canada also has a 9% recycling rate. The EU, 30, still at just a 30% recycling rate. But the real issue is from a closed-loop perspective. Just 2% of plastic end products can actually be used again in the making of those products, which is astonishing. So everything else that is being recycled in plastics is being repurposed for lower value applications. And there is real potential value in that plastics fail. By weight, it's about 7% of post-consumer recycled content, but its value is significantly more. And when you think about the economic opportunity here, right now we're looking at an economic value loss of $100 to $120 billion globally in the plastics economy from a lack of circularity. And as I mentioned before, we're seeing those increased regulatory pressures in Europe and the U.S. to reduce plastic waste. We're seeing companies representing over 20 percent of all plastic packaging produced globally, signing up for the new plastics economy, global commitments. These are names like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Colgate, Mars, Walmart and so on. So they're pushing to drive higher recycled content. And then really one of the challenges to make all this work is to find the high value end markets for recycled streams and to put into place the collection and processing infrastructure to separate out different plastics. And I think that's one of the big changes you will see in US waste handling infrastructure over the next decade. An increased investment in plastic sortation, traceability of the waste streams, beneficial reuse applications. This is a fantastic area for technology innovation. We're already seeing that in the market today. And Jane, I think more to come.
0: So who are some of the players in that, in the waste handling and sortation area?
1: Sure, Uh, obviously some of the large waste companies we cover that are forward integrating into plastics recycling, like waste management or public services. We've also seen technologies encourage accurate sorting of materials for tracking and traceability. There's a number of sortation equipment makers, both in the U.S. and Europe, that are bringing really innovative technologies to market. Improved optical sortation, and the like and then there are some really interesting disruptive technologies, process technologies. Company like PureCycle Technologies that's taking post-consumer recycle and polypropylene and turning that into virgin-like resin. So a lot of innovation in this area.
0: And when you think about what's required, um, and you sort of referenced governments and corporations. You know, I think about mining and heavy industry, which I think accounts for a fair amount of waste. And how's that going to play out in terms of the partnership and regulation in in that space?
1: Mining and heavy industry is a fascinating area, really from materials flow. It's maybe one of the most important areas because every year, 100 gigatons of material enters the world economy and under 9% of that is cycled back, right? So that's the circularity gap. But about 75% of that material is coming from extraction. It's coming from minerals, ores, and fossil fuels, of course. And 25% of all waste generated in the EU, for example, is from mining and quarrying. It's higher in other economies. So we're really starting to see, I think, some significant shifts in the metals and the minerals industry. You look at companies like Nucor. Their steel had 71% recycled content last year. 50% of Europe's copper demand comes from recycled material. We're seeing new companies with technologies for recycling lithium ion. You know, I think Apple famously developed a robotic line in 2016 that could disassemble an iPhone every 11 seconds, which is about two and a half million phones per year, and can extract the same amount of gold from 400 cell phones as one ton of high quality gold ore. So, yeah, I think we're going to see mining companies and metals companies partner with producers and recycling companies potentially acquiring some of those recycling technologies to diversify their revenue model over time.
0: Well, that's good to hear because my sense is that those companies have historically been pretty resistant to change. So I'm glad to hear that you think that there might be a shift there.
1: Absolutely. I think it's all about revenue diversification and frankly, business model diversification, that there are any number of drivers for you know, efficiency in manufacturing overall, uh, and certainly in, in mining and heavy industry. Automation is a big technology that we spend a lot of time on. But really, a lot of this comes down to just being able to monitor, test and trace your supply chain from start to finish and the actual impact of your operations.
0: And another big kind of industrial bucket is construction and the power sector, because I know that's another big source of, of waste. Can you spend a couple minutes on that?
1: Sure, absolutely. So the power sector, you think about electricity and heat production, that represents about 25 percent of global emissions. And the majority of that is really feeding into buildings, right? Consuming electricity, we're consuming heat. There are major efforts to decarbonize the building stock underway. And there are a number of models to do that that really align with circular economy principles. I think the power sector, on a relative basis, particularly in the US, is actually a success story in decarbonization and circularity. CO2 emissions from the power sector have dropped 40% below 2005 levels but we are not yet on a path to zero emissions by 2035. And so there are a number of levers uh, that we're looking at to uh, really accelerate that trajectory. I think one obviously is to utilize renewable energy like solar and wind which garnered about $820 billion last year. Renewables dominate investment in new power generation, expected to account for 70% of 2021's total spending on generation capacity. So another lever is to optimize generation via the smart grid. We actually only use about 43-44% of the total generation capacity we have on the grid currently. So it's really about putting more intelligence and control on the grid and being able to optimize the generation of power and the direction of power flows when we need them, where we need them. That becomes particularly obvious as we think about, you know, more homeowners generating solar from their rooftops and charging their EVs at home and, you know, storing potentially with on-site battery storage. So bringing intelligence to the grid is important. And then a very powerful lever, uh, maybe the biggest lever <laughs> is energy efficiency which has averaged about $240 billion of investment per year globally. But in many ways, this is still just scratching the surface of its potential, particularly in commercial and industrial applications. It's axiomatic, but the, the cheapest source of uh, electricity is the one that you don't use. So those are some of the levers that we look at as investable opportunities.
0: Right, so economic benefits kind of driving a lot of this. Well, so your job is to navigate investors through your industries, and our job on this podcast is to talk future. Can you give us a sense of some of the stocks that you feel are critical to be watching here for investors who wanna play in this space?
1: And maybe I'll just bucket them following our discussion into uh, those categories of uh, the power sector industry and then talking about plastics. So power sector first, the first name I would highlight is Hannon Armstrong, ticker H-A-S-I. This is a specialty finance provider that only invests in climate positive uh, projects, renewable energy, energy efficiency. Every year they finance between one to two billion dollars of renewable energy, energy efficiency projects. They're growing earnings at high single-digit kager with an expanding portfolio of recurring revenue-generating investments. Very innovative business model, very nimble and flexible. I think well positioned to address all these different opportunities we discussed. A similar company in that vein is Amoresco, ticker AMR. This is a company that was founded expressly to do deep energy efficiency retrofits, primarily for institutional clients like the federal government, schools universities and hospitals they are expanding into the CNI sector a very important growth vertical as we have more corporates committing to net zero by 2040 or sooner companies growing top line close to 10% per year EBITDA close to 20% another name that many investors will be familiar with but i think is really capitalizing on the decarbonization opportunity is Johnson Controls ticker JCI they recently established a net zero energy buildings as a service program They've identified this as a $240 billion revenue opportunity. It really builds on a lot of the services they've been offering for you know, very streamlined, takes advantage of a digital platform at uh, no capital cost to the customer. As we move on to the industrial side of things, I think one name that we think is a thematic winner in around these trends is Rockwell Automation. Automation is going to be a key enabler of the circular economy. For the reasons I talked about before, whether you're trying to track your emissions or you know, reduce materials, waste, It's incredibly important to have visibility in your manufacturing operations and into your supply chain. And Rockwell has, I think, done a terrific job of evolving its offerings with a lot of software content to be able to partner with companies on their journey to becoming a connected enterprise, to converge their operations technology with their information technology and really be able to have that kind of granularity and control capabilities to become more efficient in manufacturing. Mm. And finally, as we move over to the idea of plastics, and and I'd say more broadly, uh, you know, post-consumer recycling efforts and the opportunities there. Two names to highlight, of course, would be Waste Management, ticker WM, and Republic Services, ticker RSG. Uh, These are the two largest recycling companies in the U.S., investing in aggregate about $200 million per year in increased recycling processing. Both companies have done, I think, a really nice job of transforming their business model and recycling to be less dependent on the value of the commodities and, and more really tied to providing a service to municipal and commercial customers that want to recycle, enabling that and I think going downstream with uh, you know, more sortation technology, improved automation to extract more value from the bale. And the last company I would highlight is uh, PureCycle Technologies, I mentioned before, ticker PCT. They are commercializing a novel process technology to take a post-consumer polypropylene, which is, if you're not familiar, the most common polymer. Yeah, you find everywhere in your house: detergent bottles, you know, potato chip bags, diapers. I'll, I'll certainly <laughs> find a lot of that in my house. Uh, and 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 the ability to take those kinds of post-consumer content and turn that back into a resin that can be used, again, in the formulation of the same product. Those are some of the companies that uh, we're watching. I think there is a a much broader ecosystem of potentially viable players. Uh, We do believe this is an area that's going to increasingly attract fund flow as a a thematic opportunity, but really as an opportunity to finance innovation, right? Because again, Mm -hmm. to come back to the, the central idea here, so much of this is about design and agility. And companies that are embracing design agility and innovation from a product development perspective, we think have the position to be long-term winners in the circular economy.
0: Absolutely. Well, what a great list of companies. Thank you for that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't pitch to our listeners that investors have an opportunity to hear more about this because you have an ESG summit coming up, right? That's
1: right. We're hosting Oppenheimer's first summit strong climate focus, I would say, on September 28th. Many of the companies I've just mentioned will be participating. We're fortunate to have uh, Gene Rogers from SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, keynoting that conference, and I think is going to give some fascinating insight into circular economy trends. We're also hosting panels on building efficiency and decarbonization of the transport sector. So some great content, some great companies, and we hope investors will be able to
0: participate. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. And Noah, thank you so much for your time. This was a great discussion on a super important topic. So thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: It was my pleasure and thank you for having me.
0: Don't miss the next episode of Let's Talk Future as we explore a variety of topics important to every kind of investor by bringing our firm's financial thought leaders directly to you. Hit the subscribe button today.